0: Welcome to the Musical Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Ploger, And during these podcasts, I'm looking forward to being able to explore all aspects of what it is to be musical, whether that is how we can be more musical as musicians, or how we can understand why we love music and why we think it's musical or why it isn't. So we'll be exploring everything from how to perform music, how to listen to music, as well as aspects of music Perception and cognition.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Musical Communication Podcast. My name is Karen, and I am your producer. And I am sitting here with Marianne, your host. Hello. Hello, Karen. Thanks so much. Um, how are you feeling post Thanksgiving? Uh, Stuffed <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and wonderful. Really grateful for everything.
1: Yeah. And thank you all so much for, for reaching out and noticing that we took a little mini break from, from the podcast to kind of regroup, and now we're back full steam ahead, and we're going to be releasing back to our weekly episode release, um, and we're really excited for our episodes in the month of December. So what do you want to start with, Marianne?
0: I thought maybe today I should talk about the elements of music yeah, and how, how we can improve ourselves and become fluent by mastering those elements. Yeah, okay,
1: let's start there. So what's the first one?
0: The first one I wanna start with is rhythm because this is the foundation of all music. It's about time. And so a lot of times we kind of ignore rhythm. We just take it for granted. And I think that it is the most elemental part of music. And so by becoming really natural in our ability to hear, our ability to perform, Mm -hmm. our ability to read and write rhythms, we can become much freer musicians. And it is the key. It is the energy of music.
1: Why isn't this something that we spend more time on? Like I I was mentioning to you before we started recording that I hadn't really heard about the value of rhythm till I met you Mm -hmm. and you know I like we know I've had a very privileged musical education and it's just really surprising that there's more value on the tonality of things, the harmony, the theory, but not so much what seems to be the foundation. So would you care to elaborate a little bit on On that? that?
0: I think that it's related Karen to the fact that ultimately we take rhythm for granted. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of teachers assume that we can count and without being really clear about what that means or what that is actually, we take it for granted. And that, unfortunately, I think that it gets lost in the translation. So as we worry about getting all of our pitches, as you were saying, and trying to play them on our instrument or to sing them, perform them, we end up actually not fully realizing what the rhythms are and the importance of the rhythms. For example, we take for granted the fact that in rock and roll you have a very strong second beat and fourth beat but you know you have to have the counterbalance of the first and the third to be able to have that so Mm -hmm. if you're a baroque musician you talk about rhythmic hierarchy and frankly that's where I learned about these very important elements of rhythm that come from the baroque period and from poetry way before that and of course dance so as classical musicians we tend to just see that there are four beats in a bar or three beats in a a bar. And we tend to perform them almost equally. And uh, that we, we end up kind of uh, ignoring some very important things in terms of communication in music that exist in popular music as a rule. So mm. I think we just have to kind of go back to nature a little bit.
1: Yeah. So for anybody who, you know, is a little confused maybe on, on what rhythm is, can you give us just like a basic definition and, and just like where we might find this musically?
0: I think that in speech, for example, right now, there's a rhythm that is occurring in my speech. So when I'm speaking in a rhythmic way, there's a rhythm. Mm. When I speak in a rhythmic way, there's a rhythm. And that when we walk, we walk rhythmically. That rhythm is inherently a part of how we exist in the world. Our cells divide rhythmically or Hopefully, when they're healthfully, uh, healthful, that is, they are dividing in a natural rhythm so that ultimately, it is a part of what we are. Our breathing mm-hmm. is rhythmic. Uh, everything about our cycles in nature are rhythmic. There's circadian rhythms that we all enjoy, that mm-hmm. ultimately, these are rhythms. So we're controlled every moment by rhythm. So this is one of those things that we just have to tune into once again. Metaconsciously, I think we all understand rhythm, but we have to tune in with our conscious awareness and that's where things get a little bit dicey. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So based on that logic, then we all in theory could have good rhythm.
0: Absolutely. I believe that that is absolutely the case. When I've worked with somebody who has supposedly poor rhythm, very often all I have to do is, as I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast, is just let's go for a walk together. Yeah. And then as we're walking, all I have to do is just gently snap my fingers as we're talking, and the person begins to realize, oh, my gosh, I am I am walking rhythmically. Yeah. So I have inherently good rhythm. Uh, every time I deal with somebody who says they don't have rhythm, I'll ask them to explain themselves. And in so doing, I can also come up with this sort of rhythm that they're using when they're speaking so the accents are happening at rhythmic intervals and this is natural this is just natural the difficulties that they have is that they're Mm self-conscious and so their conscious awareness is interfering with the natural process this is very understandable so all we have to do is let go of the inhibition and concern and very often they can be, if you will, we all can be fooled into being natural in our rhythm.
1: Wow. Yeah. So the ego once again.
0: It was the <laughs> ego once again. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Or again, that, that uh, self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um,
0: so what is the next element? The next element I would say is pitch because it's so elemental. So there are these individuals who have absolute pitch, and that is that they're able to identify the 12 pitches in the octave. So ultimately, pitch is frequency, and that it's a very important thing indeed. So uh, we have to have pitches in order to have the next element, which will be dichords. And without question, that, that I believe, those elements are the more important of them. So a way of thinking of it? is imagine in the musical language we have 12 basic, if you will, letters, Mm. okay? So we have more than that, number of, of letters in the alphabet, but in music actually we have only 12 basic, what are called note or pitch classes to the octave, just 12. Now we can be in the cracks, there's no question about that, that's really wonderful, but there are these basic elements that we now have. So if we have those 12 elements, then a dichord, which is that third element I want to talk about, is my term for the musical interval. And that is essentially like a syllable, like it, Hmm. or two, (laughs) any (laughs) pairing of two letters to create a syllable. Now, as we know, music is not usually just made up of individual letters, it's made up of... Triads and chords, and those are words. So you're beginning to pair syllables or dichords to create words, triads, major and minor triads or diminished triads, or trichords, mm.
1: uh, combinations
0: <laughs> of pitches that form more sensible elements, like music, <laughs> two different syllables there. So that ultimately that I think is what we have to do is master how pitches form dichords and that dichords form more and more complex trichords and tetrachords and for that matter, heptachords, uh, as I call them, or scales and modes, seven note groupings. So that um, ultimately that's how we're creating the musical language or with those elements.
1: That's amazing. I really love and appreciate your, your examples because I'd never considered, you know, letters, sounds, you know, consonants, groupings, all of this to just kind of, cause you think of like chords and tetrachords and Neapolitan six and French, whatever. <laughs> and you're like, what is that? I don't mm-hmm. even know. And it's just, you know, slightly more distilled sentences. And that's, that's crazy. So why don't we talk about it this way? Why do we make it so complicated? That's a good question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think that the tendency is to make mountains out of molehills. Mm. And it did take me a very long time though in my teaching to be able to come to these kinds of whatever metaphors that help us to understand how things are built. But I, I think that we tend to not often think very deeply about why music works and how it works. And we tend to take it for granted. And I think that's kind of beautiful in in and of itself, but there is a problem with it. And that is that we're not considering the truth uh, behind what we're doing in music and uh, mastering these elements.
1: Yeah. So for anybody else whose mind is also blown, um, how do we begin? even rethinking and reframing, like how, how can we include some of these things into our, into our practice?
0: I think one of the things we need to do in Western music, especially is we need to stop worshiping absolute pitch. Mm. Okay. So I think it's been a disease and that this disease has spread And that is, if you have absolute pitch, you are able to identify pitches by ear. That is wonderful. And that you can identify them as well as sing them, which is fantastic. Wow, that's a law. I can just sing that law. That's pretty amazing, actually. And you can do it reliably. So the thing is, that's just a letter. And this is what I find again and again, is with a person with absolute pitch, so what? It's a letter. (laughs) (laughs) It's a letter A. Good for you. Marvelous. Now, what does that spell? How is it combining with other letters, other notes, to be able to create meaning, to be able to create something that has value? All right, so one of the first things we have to do is we have to stop thinking that absolute pitch by itself is so great, and all of us, I think, can learn to have absolute pitch to the extent that we need to. Um, I do have a way of teaching that, but I only do it after I help people to identify pitch pairs, what are what I call dichords or are often called intervals. Okay, so I think that what we have to do is start with this basic idea. Twelve pitches in an octave. Only twelve. And they're duplicated or replicated. It's like having 12 different creatures. And then as you go to higher and higher octaves, those creatures are half the size of what they were at a lower octave and double the size as you get lower. So I don't care. It's an elephant. I don't (laughs) care if it's a little elephant or a giant elephant. It's an elephant. Okay. A giraffe is another creature. So that ultimately we get so that we can recognize or understand the pitches as a beginning point. Certainly on the keyboard, we can just get so that, can you find an A? Of course you can. Yeah. And can I find an F? That helps the brain to know that is an F, that is an A. If we consistently call that pitch by its right name, especially if we're really young, it will make it very easy for the brain to remember it. Mm. It's an elephant or a giraffe it's not some amorphous nothing but how many of us were taught that before the age of four or five I wasn't yeah nobody taught me that this note a consistently will be this frequency but if you teach a normal child that by the age of three or four they're gonna have absolute pitch in my experience so I've worked with many people whose kids, children, uh, have absolute pitch and did not have it until they started to train them to care about what those pitches' names are. So the first thing is, let's get so we clearly identify in our mind, have a visual, kinesthetic, and auditory sense of what each pitch is, and make sure our brain is consistently calling it by the same name. This is my objection to movable syllables. Is when we call that note A, sometimes uh, Do, sometimes we call it Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, or La, or T. So we don't call it consistently a particular name. The result is we get confused. You know, you played the saxophone. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the saxophone name of your pitches do not match the names on the keyboard. It's a nightmare. So yeah, it is a nightmare. <laughs> and for transposing instruments, my sister plays a clarinet and uh, heaven only knows and now she's very good at it. But what is the concert pitch that she's actually playing? Right. And I've worked with kids who are professional saxophone folks, and they uh, often in undergraduate school do not know what the concert pitches are, right. that they're playing. Yeah. So right away, you have problems with pitch. <laughs> what is the pitch? We are lucky because after around 1850, we began to establish a consistent frequency that is associated with a pitch name. So we're very lucky. Throughout the world, we have a standard now, which we didn't have. So one of the first things is, let's get our pitches. Let's begin to tell our brain, now look. Consistently, I see this note on the keyboard. It's that particular note, and it has this particular name. Of course, I work to help develop that so then the next thing is dichords well there are only 11 of those because you have two different pitches there are only 11 different combinations you can have a c with a c sharp a c with a d c with an e flat c with an e etc so they're only 11. we only have to learn 11 of these sounds but the reason it's gone so wrong in the past is people have not been able to consistently tell you how you can recognize the distance from a C to a D. And in fact, what they call it is an interval. It's the pitch C and the pitch D, not the combination of the two pitches that are a certain number of semitones apart that will allow us to identify it. Mm. Okay, so we learn here comes the bride for the perfect fourth. And that only sounds right when a scale degrees five up to one uh, because that's dot hum, that's a relationship of Here Comes a Bride and you yeah. know, the NBC theme song, what I call Tune Bites, uh, we learn these things. And that's not teaching you the sound of the die chord, which is when the two pitches are put together, how they interact. What mm-hmm. is the sonic result of that interaction of those two pitches? And that's what I call a dichord. So the dichord is ultimately the interaction of two pitch frequencies that varies according to the number of semitones um, in the octave. So ultimately, it differs according to that distance. And I've identified these three sound factors that no one else in the past has that will explicitly tell you why a minor third is not a major third. Okay. So there is a difference. What is the difference? And not just sort of, it's this tune bite, which you can't recognize quickly, um, or or actually (laughs) use in any real context. So that's, you can recognize it and the brain does recognize it, I believe, um, in real time. And that this, this is the the orphan child in music is the ability to recognize this quality, the dichord quality. And Pythagoras spoke of it as proportions, but that doesn't help. I'm so sorry. It doesn't help me to know that a perfect fifth is a two to three ratio to be able to tell that's a perfect fifth instead of a three to four. Uh, it is the truth, uh, that that is actually close to the, what we're hearing. It's a relationship between the two pitches. It doesn't really help you identify it in time.
1: Yeah. So. So I wanted to talk about the concept of time, uh, like the length of time that things take, because I think that, um, I'll speak for myself. Like as a conservatory trained musician, you, you think of like, okay, my undergraduate is four years and I have four years to do X, Y, or Z. And then if you continue your education, you have two more years to get a master's and then three to five to get a doctorate. So in theory, you could spend 10 years in higher ed to get, you know, the first three degrees, or I guess a terminal degree. Um, but once you get out of the construct or the, I don't know, velvet handcuffs of academia, and you are in the real world, the concept of time seems to shift. And I think in our society, and our culture, we th- then tend to have more of a microwavable concept of I'm going to you know, take a lesson or two with you, get the basics of what you're talking about, and then hope that within the next few weeks, I can then execute all these things that I never knew to do. So in your experience, working with you know, hundreds of very successful students, like how long does this take and, and, and where is our disconnect with how long learning some of these concepts or may, rather unlearning should take?
0: It's an excellent question. Of course, it's very much dependent on the attitude of the of the student and their receptivity. So I believe that one could learn these basic concepts rather quickly uh, because there are 12 pitches and 11 die chords <laughs> and any beat can be counted in ones and twos. So ultimately, one could master these things rather quickly, right? The reason that it's so difficult, though, is it's a very different mindset than what we're used to. Because all of a sudden, you're having to do things in real time. You're having to count in real time, and you've never done that before. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I'm ta 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 ta. ta. <laughs> So your brain has to go, one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, four. OK, so that it's really yeah. having to count at a very fast rate. And it's not used to doing that. Your conscious awareness isn't used to keeping up. So I think that this is a hard thing for an adult, is that we're so fluent in being an adult. Hmm. We drive cars, <laughs> we go shopping, we use credit <laughs> cards, we use all our computers, we do, we do all of these very complicated things fluently. Uh, And then suddenly to realize that, oh my gosh, I cannot count to four reliably um, and know where things are happening. And it's not that you can't, it's that you have to speed it up to real time. And that's what takes, that's what's so, that's challenging. So you can't see this as, as I'm speaking to you, but uh, I like to use this image. Imagine that you have this beautiful, fluid, let's say almost um, mill a, a circle that just moves at a constant rate, maybe a clock face; the, the, the hands of a clock are moving at a constant rate, and that it's very fluent and very fluid. To me, this is what I call metaconsciousness. This is our sense of how music goes, that we can sing the Star-Spangled Banner and have not a clue what the pitches are, what the rhythms are, or what the die chords are, <laughs> uh, scale degrees. Uh, but we sing it accurately and yeah. in time. So that this is the challenge, is that we're able to do this stuff without knowing how we do it at all. I call this meta consciousness. That's my own term for it. I don't call it subconscious. The reason I don't is that it's operating at a level that's higher than consciousness. <laughs> It's Supply. there all the time, but it's operating at a very complex level that we don't understand. Yeah, I believe this is similar to what Noam Chomsky would find in language, that the infant, the toddler, is able to start putting words together without knowing verbs and adverbs and adjectives and nouns and subjects. and They are able to put it together at a level that supersedes conscious awareness. Yeah, in music, this is normal. The problem is becoming consciously aware, and that is I like to say that moving in tandem to this clock is another clock, and it's it's it jerking and it, it's stopping and so <laughs> yeah. instead of yeah, so the challenge is to be getting those two things to sync, so that our conscious awareness is able to keep up. Any of us who have learned a second language understand what this is like. You know, you have to learn the vocabulary, you have to learn the grammar, and then you have to learn how to speed it up to the speed of your thoughts. Oh my gosh. It's the same thing.
1: That is amazing. I never considered that. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So let's wrap up here because I have a million more questions, but I think that'll make sense for our next episode. Um, but any any parting thoughts or, or anything that you want people to maybe consider doing?
0: I would say one of the first things that you can try, and that would be very valuable for your brain if you're a musician, never let an instrument play a pitch for you until you try to sing it first. All right. Mm-hmm. And then, for example, a good thing to do is if even on your computer, if you just tune, turn, if you tune into, if you don't have one already, an app that has a keyboard on it, try to sing a note intentionally. See if you can sing like the note F. Could you sing the note F? Do the best you can. Don't expect it to be right because you're just asking your toddler mind awareness to do it consciously. Okay. I want to say under hypnosis, I half wonder whether many of us who are trained in music wouldn't just sing it correctly. All right. Under hypnosis. Huh. <laughs> because our brain probably knows it. Yeah. But imagine really seeing it now on the keyboard. Imagine playing it, concert pitch, uh, uh, as it is. Do the best you can to sing that F in the range that you can. And then play it. Now, match the pitch that you played and say that that's an F. That's an F. Now, think of it in another octave. Sing that same pitch and think of it in different octaves. It's an elephant. might be a little elephant. It might be a big elephant, you know, depending what octave. But it's an elephant. It's a unique thing. It's an F. Mm. And then every day, try to sing that F. See if you can go back and sing that F. And don't be discouraged if you can't. What you want to be just doing is telling your brain, you know what? For the first time, I'm asking you. Can you give me that F? There are only a 12 of these guys. And never take it personally if it's not correct. Be loving and compassionate, it's like you're teaching a child, okay? And it might not happen overnight at all. Good, <laughs> yeah. but it that does, that's not the important thing. Then try another note the next week. See if you can do that see, and see how you can do. And bring your memory in there. Try to feel the note that you're even on your app. Feel yourself seeing that note, visual. See yourself touching that note, maybe in several octaves, and different octaves, all at the same time. Kinesthetic or kinetic, physical. And then finally, auditory. Mm. Can you hear it? Then are all those things triangulating to, so you can hear it? So the first thing we want to do is tell the brain, look, we can become conscious. Let us see if we cannot make it conscious. Mm.
1: I love that. Thank you so much, Marianne. Um, So for those of you listening, um, if you think of it, if you could please leave us a review on Apple Music, that is the only way that people find the podcast. Uh, Be sure to subscribe and give Marianne a follow on Instagram at Marianne Ploger. And then we have the Ploger Method uh, community on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in.